0: Father, we give you thanks, as always, for a morning devoted to you. So often it is, Father, that we think of nothing more than the hour and a half we spend in your word on a Sunday as your time, but rather, Father, we should think of every day and every hour as being yours, time we would spend to you and for you and with you on our minds and our hearts. But in this one and a half hour time, Father, we are especially mindful that we are here to praise you, to give you glory, to understand your word and to devote ourselves to a life that reflects it and what we've learned in it. Father, I pray as we go into Luke again this morning, that this work you've been doing with us as we've gone through this gospel would continue, that in the chapter we now find ourselves in, that you would speak to our hearts on some specific issue perhaps, Father, on a calling that you wish us to hear, a change you wish us to make, Father, perhaps some differences you'd like us to to make in our lives or in our actions. But Father, in anything you tell us, we just pray, Father, that you would give us the strength to obey, that we would reflect the word in our own lives, Father, that we would be a a witness to the world, not just in what we say, but in what we do. And I thank you, Father, for all the opportunities you've given us to study in this way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Luke 4, we're in the beginning of Luke 4 this week. If you remember in the first third of this book, as we studied it last week, Jesus received his authority to minister. He essentially received that authority by the power of the Holy Spirit coming out of chapter 3. And then in the first third we see him going into the wilderness being tempted by the enemy, demonstrating his sinless nature and then ultimately his obedience. So Luke has been taking us very methodically through the beginning stages of Christ's ministry. Initially to understanding that Christ was in fact the Messiah by virtue of him being anointed by the Holy Spirit. Having been anointed and having been commissioned in that way, he is now about to step out and begin that ministry. But before that even, he goes into the wilderness to demonstrate his sinlessness, his obedient character. Now, in the final third, as we get to it in a week or so, we're going to see the beginning of the records of his miracles, the means by which he demonstrates his power and his authority. The last part of this chapter we're going to get to eventually is the beginning of the record of his miracles. We're going to see Jesus actually doing what we all... So commonly associated with the gospel message. Jesus in towns, on the road, with his apostles, healing people, uh, spreading the good news, doing the things that he was doing to demonstrate that he did have all the power and authority that he was declaring to have, that he was in fact the Messiah. So in stages, Luke is moving us through the very early parts of, Luke, of Christ's ministry, from his anointing by the Holy Spirit, his testing in the wilderness, and then find, ultimately to be shown in miracles in the way that he went about Demonstrating who he was. But here today, we're going to find ourselves in the middle of those, in that middle of of that sequence. After he's been anointed, after he's been tested, but before he really tries to demonstrate who he is through miracles, in sort of a very early stage of that process. And today we're going to study essentially his declaration of his ministry, the announcement of the arrival of the Messiah, his first attempt to make that point to the world. And in chapter 4, we're going to see how the people of Israel react to that claim. Luke 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through all the surrounding district. And He began teaching in their synagogues, and was praised by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up, and as was His custom, He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him, and He opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And He closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, Jesus leaves the high desert of the Galilee. At the end of chapter three and into chapter four, he's come up from the Jordan, which is on the far eastern extreme of this area called Galilee. He moved essentially north, northwest into a high desert mountainous region of the Galilee where he was likely tempted. We don't know exactly where that took place, but given that he starts at the Jordan and he ends up in Nazareth, it makes some sense to locate him for the purpose of the testing in the desert wilderness that separates those two places. And as he begins moving out from the wilderness, from the time of the testing, he's entering in little towns and villages as he comes upon them. And he says clearly that in each of these places he finds himself, he goes into synagogues. He goes into the local place of worship. We know he visits Capernaum because it's mentioned later in the same chapter. Capernaum sits on the very north shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you have a map in your Bible, you'll see it's, it's sort of a, a, an oval or tear, teardrop-shaped body of water just to the west of, or just in line with the Jordan River, or to the west of the Jordan River, rather. And it is at the very northern edge of the Sea of Galilee that you find Capernaum. He probably also visited a, a town called Hazor, which is just north of Capernaum. And if you were to look at the account in Matthew and look at the account in Mark about this same instance, this same visit to Nazareth, you'd probably notice some differences, some significant differences in the way the account is captured in the three Gospels. In particular, the timing. In Mark and in Matthew... The timing of this visit to Nazareth, Nazareth seems to happen much later in Christ's ministry than the one that's recorded here in Luke. Uh, Matthew and Mark also have picture, also talk about disciples being with Jesus as he enters Nazareth. Luke doesn't have that until chapter 5 of his gospel. Matthew and Mark have Christ performing many miracles prior to going into Nazareth and as a function of the ministry that was gone going around that visit. Whereas in Luke, you're not going to see many miracles until after he leaves Nazareth. Although there is a reference in Luke 4 to miracles in Capernaum. Essentially, there's two possibilities for reconciling the difference. One, and probably the most obvious, is simply that he went to Nazareth more than once. Because he goes to many of these towns more than once. In the three years of Christ's ministry, he walks throughout the region of Galilee, down into Jerusalem and and so on. And in his wanderings, he'll hit multiple places multiple times. Another answer would be that Luke is simply placing this event earlier in his gospel, though it took place later in his ministry, as a point to be making about the development of Christ's ministry, of the fact that he would be rejected ultimately. I like the multiple visit theory more myself, but the fact fact is we don't have to reconcile that in order to understand the text, in order to accept it as it's written. These men were writing from different perspectives with different pieces of information. The whole is what you get out of looking at the entire gospels, all four put together. So as Jesus arrives at the synagogues, as he normally would do, he would teach. Now, synagogue, the word synagogue actually means bring together or to assemble together in Hebrew. And Luke provides us a lot of detail on the nature of the business done in the synagogue, more than the other writers. That makes some sense. Luke is a Greek writer writing to a Greek audience who probably would be very unfamiliar with the nature of a synagogue and what goes on in one. And synagogues, if you remember, existed primarily as worship for the Jew who did not live in Jerusalem. There was no synagogue in Jerusalem because they had the temple. But if you didn't have a temple nearby and you wanted to assemble in worship, what did you do? Well, you assembled in some building or some home and you called it the local gathering place or the synagogue. It was the primary place for Jews to sing praises, to study the Torah or the Word of God in general, and to pray together. And that teaching in the synagogue, I don't know if any of you have ever been in a synagogue or seen a Jewish service in a synagogue, but probably not. That teaching could be done by any male Jew, anyone who was over the age of 13 and had gone through the male ritual of adulthood, the bar mitzvah. And the study of the word, the preparation for that moment, really uh, uh, commanded the attention of a young child all the way up until the age they were about 13. So a young man who was approaching that age was preparing in his whole life to be ready for that moment when he could teach legitimately take on the role of teacher in the synagogue not only of course did all of that encourage a knowledge of the word of god but it just encouraged literacy many young men in the jewish tradition learned how to read and write because they were preparing for their roles as a teacher in the synagogue now as you know from the study of the gospels overall by this point by the time jesus had come along these sects had developed within the jewish faith we had Men who looked to the knowledge of the word of God as the means by which they were saved rather than a faith in God. There, was men, there were men who would look to their faith as a way of gain for themselves, pride and power and so on. It was a fairly corrupt faith by the time Jesus came along. So, of course, that meant that when you walked into a synagogue, you didn't know exactly what you were going to find. You could have found a very healthy congregation. You could have found a very unhealthy congregation. You could have found men who were there for the right reason, men who were there for the wrong reason. You're never quite sure what you would find. When a notable visitor would arrive for a Sabbath service, they would be commonly given the honor of the chance to read from the Word and be the teacher for that day. So if you were a guest in a synagogue, you might be put on the spot to come up to the front and do the do the role of the teacher for that day. Now the practice in the temple, as Luke gives us this indication, was for the reading of God's Word to be done in a standing position. Having read the Word of God, you'd hand the scroll back to the attendant. Remember, we're talking about scrolls of parchment that would be rolled up. So they'd unroll to a point where they wanted to read, read the text, roll it back up, hand it to an attendant. And then the practice was for the one who would expound the Word, do the teaching off that passage, that person would then sit for the purpose of teaching. So they would sit throughout their teaching. So in the way that... Jesus is shown working in Luke, it works exactly this way. In Luke verse 20 of, verse of chapter 4, he gives the book back to the attendant and he sits down. And it says all the eyes of the synagogue were on him because they want to hear what he's going to say. This is the point at which they're going to hear from that teacher. Does the pattern sound familiar? Kim here mentioned already, this, the gathering of God's people really hasn't changed all that much in the thousands of years it's been ongoing, except I'm not allowed to sit down. Well, you probably would let me sit down, I guess, but it doesn't feel as comfortable these days as apparently it used to. And the Spirit of God, being the one whom has the ministry to direct men in worship of the Father, has been working throughout history, so it only makes sense that the way he works wouldn't fundamentally change all that much. That the way he worked in the time of the Jews who would worship in their synagogue is much the same the way he would work today. So the pattern ought to be the same. And it ought to be a measure for us of whether or not we're looking at a fairly healthy congregation, whether it's our own or anybody else's, or whether we're looking at one that's not following the leading of the Spirit. For example, is the Word of God prominent in the service? Not bits and pieces of it, not, not a phrase thrown in at the end so that I can make mention of the Bible. Not studying books about the Bible. Studying the Bible and studying it in depth, studying it at length. Much in the way that Jesus would have done here. I mean, he only read a small passage because his purpose for him being there that day was very specific. But it wouldn't be uncommon for a man to stand up, read an extended passage, sit down, and expound upon it. This was the Jewish tradition. Secondly, singing of praise. The Jews would sing their psalms, or they would sing other praise music, usually a cappella or with very little instrumentation. The method of singing isn't the point. The point is, do we give option or opportunity for men and women to sing praise, to be evocative, to be... Uh, to, to express from a more deeply seated place in their soul and the spirit what they feel about God, as opposed to keeping it all intellectual, as opposed to staying so strictly in your head over your experience with God that you never allow your emotions to connect at all. And God becomes a very distant, analytical, and aseptic kind of experience. We want to We want to be careful of ever getting into that role. Thirdly, are you praying for one another? Is the body generally drawn together by the Holy Spirit? Or are we all individually experiencing it as one and then we go home and we don't connect in any other way? That, that would be an unhealthy way of sharing your faith. Finally, things like fellowship and just time spent together in service or in any other way to express our faith outwardly to others. All of these are natural, healthy consequences of a healthy church. This is what the Spirit of God brings to any body of believers. Fundamentally, everyone in that group should be looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises in his word, to his coming, or to, in the case of the Jews, to the Messiah's coming. In the case of the Christian faith today, the Messiah's return. But in any event, to the fulfillment of those promises. You know, the gatherings that we have today, the gatherings we had in that day, they do vary from this pattern a bit here and there, and that's, that's fine. I don't ever want to get into the mode of thinking, here's a perfect church and everybody else is wrong, the old adage that if you find a perfect church, right, don't join it. Because if you do, it won't be perfect anymore. And that's the fundamental problem with churches today is that we are too, wor- too willing to call what we do perfect and everything else imperfect. And then if we find ourselves looking for a new church, we get very picky about what it is we're looking for, expecting to find perfection. Forgetting for, for the moment that it's God and His Holy Spirit that drives the church and He uses imperfect men because that's all He has. And so the word will drive the nature and the the quality of the body, but not perfectly because we are imperfect in carrying it out. Now, in the day of Jesus, in the day of this story, no doubt he encountered some synagogues along his path that were very imperfect. No doubt he came on some of these cities we've heard about, walked into a fellowship and said, these folks are way off. They probably had, you know, you could have found anything and everything in their day just like you could have today. You may have even found things like divination going on in some of the Jewish synagogues. Some of the Gnostics, perhaps, some of the same problems that invaded the early church would have been there for the Jewish church as well. What do you think he did when he came in there to some of these churches that didn't strictly observe Jewish practice or didn't reverence the word as they did or should have? Well, Jesus ran into all those kinds, but it's... Interesting that, nevertheless, he honored each and every one of them, according to Scripture, by coming in and teaching. He didn't come in and you know turn all over the tables and start pointing his finger at them and telling them everything they're doing wrong. He just brought the Word of God. He went back to the old traditional rule, bring what's good to help change what's bad. Don't come into what's bad and try to change it by pointing it out. It sounds as though he was a loyal and regular participant in worship regardless of where he found himself, regardless of whether he was on vacation or out of town or on a business trip, so to speak. In other words, being in the fellowship of believers was important to him regardless of where he was and when he was. And the reason for Jesus to do this clearly is very different than you and I. He came in order to tell them about himself and to bring God to them in a very different way. He came in order to cure them of their illnesses and save them from their unbelief. We come to participate as a a needy person, but the same rule applies. Be in fellowship. Be with other believers. I think it's particularly interesting later in the Gospels, Christ said, I didn't come to heal the healthy, I came for the sick. The point being that the worse the congregation was, the more he needed to be there, not the less. And I think that's a challenge for us as well. If you know the Word of God, and if you are firm in your understanding of the Word, and if you're a firm and strong believer in the Word, why would you hesitate to be a part of a body that needed that kind of strength and health if you feel called into it? Even if it meant joining a body that otherwise had a lot of unhealthy aspects to it. And by that I mean not fundamentally unhealthy such that the gospel they were preaching was a different gospel. I think there is clearly a line you want to draw so that you're not so far out of touch with the real body of Christ that you're, you're basically in, in the midst of unbelievers. That becomes a different purpose for being there. Now you're there to witness But if you do find a church that's generally in the Word or generally healthy in some sense, sense, some sense strongly enough that you can be there with them on a regular basis, don't let imperfections drive you away. That, That would be your opportunity to correct some things. And I'm saying this not because you guys are going to go out and find another church necessarily, but because in this body the same rule applies. There are plenty of things we could do better. Your gifts, your insights, your desires need to be a part of what makes this happen through the Holy Spirit's power in each of us, gifting us accordingly. Christ didn't forsake participating in the ceremony even though in many cases he may have objected to what they were doing because the ceremony itself wasn't the key nor was it the reason he would reject a service. In other words, he wasn't interested in finding the perfect service before he was willing to set foot in the building. He came to make the service better. And that should be our calling as well. Christ also, I think, demonstrated making that assembly a priority. And I won't hit this for much longer because I want to go back into the text, but... Those who lived in the towns that he visited in, who weren't in the service the morning he was there, they missed him. The ones who could have been in the synagogue that Saturday but chose not to be, the ones who maybe were infrequent attendees or at the slightest opportunity found reason not to go, They that day Jesus walked in, their Messiah walked into their congregation and taught them and they weren't there. Now they could hear about it later, they could understand it later, they could certainly believe in him later. But what a shame it would have been to know you missed the chance to see the Messiah come and teach in your synagogue because of your lackadaisical approach to being in a setting with other believers. And although you can stretch that analogy and say you'll miss Jesus if you don't come into the church, uh, you, you know that's sort of a forced analogy. I think the better example would be you'll miss whatever he has for you in that day, in that moment, in the word that's being brought that day by those who surround you that day. And those things you may not get a chance to repeat. Those opportunities may not come again in the way they could have if you had been there. I believe Jesus, if he were to come back again today in the way he came the first time, sort of walking the world, preaching the good news, if that were possible, I think he'd walk from church to church to church, the good ones, the bad ones, the big ones, the small ones. Denominations didn't matter. And he would bring the same message to each of them, trying trying to get them all to see who he really was and why they needed to believe. I think it's also finally worth noting the reading and the expounding of the Word and its focus was always what he gave to every place he stopped. Ultimately, if a church is to be a church, the worship must be in spirit and truth. We've heard that. We've been told that. But when we remove the Word of God from the service, what are we left with? It's a town hall. It's a club meeting. There's n- if without the Word of God, there's no power and purpose in the meeting at all. And that was always Jesus' first concern in being in there. The church, I think, today is so unhealthy because so many places have taken the Word of God out of the rightful place, which is now in this moment, and they put it as a single reading for 30 seconds, somewhere in an hour's service, with no real relationship given to what its meaning is at any point in that service. And so Jesus is the distinguished visitor here, and it's interesting what he reads. He stands up and he reads Isaiah 61, and he reads the first verse of Isaiah 61, and he reads the first line... Of the second verse. And then he stops. It's uh, messianic, obviously. In other words, these are prophetic statements out of Isaiah about the coming Messiah. And they begin initially with this reference to the Holy Spirit. To the Holy Spirit anointing his ministry, which is a prophecy Christ just fulfilled in the time of this story just shortly before. Back in what we studied in Luke chapter 3. Then the next part of the verse describes the ministry of the Messiah. And he says first, he's going to bring good news to the afflicted. Secondly, he's going to bind up the brokenhearted. He's going to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. In other words, his ministry here was to be a ministry of reconciliation to God, of redemption to, uh, of his people, of healing for both physical and spiritual illnesses, of freeing men from the bondage of sin, ultimately. And then he says he's declaring the favorable year of the Lord. You need to understand a little bit out of Leviticus to understand this phrase. To the Jewish audience, though, this was an obvious reference to the Jewish year of Jubilee, the Jubilee year. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me give you just a little background. In Leviticus 25, God sets out in his law this principle of a Jubilee year for the nation of Israel. And it had two parts. The first part was that a farmer farming land had to leave the land unused, unfarmed, on the seventh year of every cycle. So for six years you farm, seventh year let the land lay quiet, don't farm on it. And if you have experience in farming or if you have lived on a farm, you know immediately why we do this. Farmers today do this. Maybe not on the seven year cycle per se, but they still leave time for crop rotation. And the land will eventually stop producing crop if it's not given a chance to set for the nutrients in the soil to regather, for the work of breaking down the old refuse to continue. So it's a good healthy farming practice, if nothing else, to leave the land unused for some period of time between uses. And in the Bible, it was for one year out of every seven. Now, God graciously told the nation of Israel, if you obey this command, I will see to it that in the sixth year's harvest, you will have enough harvest to cover you all the way until the eighth year so that you do not need to farm on the seventh year. And God was always faithful to do that. Now, the nation of Israel, being greedy and unfaithful, not willing to believe God and take him at his promise and too greedy to ever give up a chance to farm. They ignored this for so long. They ignored this seventh year jubilee requirement for so long that God eventually said, I'm going to make you give me back all those years you didn't give me all at one time. And that was why they had 70 years of captivity in Babylon. One year for every time they missed the jubilee. And that seventh, they left their land. They were taken out of this nation of Israel, captive back to the land of Babylon. And meanwhile, their, their fields lay unused for 70 years so that God would recapture all that time he didn't give, that they didn't give him. God's first concern was not the health of the soil, obviously. His first concern was their obedience and trust in him that they didn't need to farm on that seventh year, that he would be able to give them what they needed. The second thing that the Jubilee provided for was that after seven cycles, after seven seven-year periods, after you'd gone 49 years, there would be an additional quality to the year of jubilee. All those who were in servitude or in slavery to another would be set free. Anyone who had sold his ancestral land to another man saw that land revert back to him. So that at the 50th year, the year of jubilee, everything was restored. You got your land back, you got your freedom back, and it was a year of celebration. In fact, the law even provided that the price you could get for your land was to be diminished according to how many years were remaining until the Jubilee because obviously I sell you my land the year before the Jubilee, I shouldn't get nearly as much for it as if I sold it the year after the Jubilee. So it was all taken into account into the law for how the Jubilee ought to work. Now its spiritual significance was the primary purpose. The spiritual significance of the year of Jubilee was God's primary purpose in giving it, not the soil, not the very fact that the land would stay in the family. Those were side issues. As we know, all the law points to Christ. The law and all that's in it points to Christ, no less the, the, the uh, idea of a jubilee. We've already studied in Genesis that Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is our rest from the work of salvation. That when God said, take one day a week and rest, His point was not that in that one day a week in rest it would be good for our body. That was a side effect, just as the jubilee is a side effect for the soil. His primary purpose was to picture Christ To show that for six days you work and work and work and get nowhere, but on the seventh day, rather than you work, God will work for you on the cross. That His work on the cross substitutes for your own work and you can rest in His work. That is why Christ says, I am the Sabbath. The Sabbath is always intended to be a picture of Christ. Which is also why, when we've studied Genesis, if you remember, the Sabbath no longer applies to Christians. Yes, we are to gather together and we are to honor Christ on a routine basis and to be in church But the day of the week makes no difference. The number of times in the week makes no difference anymore. Because every day is your Sabbath now. You rest in Christ perpetually. You are always at rest. There's no going back to work now, figuratively speaking, because you now have the work that Christ did apportioned to you permanently. So the Sabbath was always a picture. Likewise, the Jubilee is a picture in both respects. In the respect of letting the soil rest, there's your confirming picture of Christ doing the work and we rest in His work and He provides for us. Provides salvation, in other words. But in that 50th year jubilee, you see the other side of His ministry. The redemption, the freedom, the provision, the idea that He will give you an inheritance and that you will be freed from the slavery of sin. That you are going to be redeemed. So in both aspects, the jubilee points to Christ. So Christ reads the first verse... And part of the second verse of, of 61 to point out that this verse speaks of him and of his ministry and here he is fulfilling it. But it's notable that he stops where he does. If he had read the next half of verse 60 of chapter 61, verse 2, he would have read this. He starts with to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's where he stops. But if he had kept going, the verse says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That next line of Isaiah describes Christ's role as judge of the world, a role he does not take on until his second coming. It also makes mention of his day of vengeance, the day in tribulation before he returns, when he pours out vengeance on the world. He doesn't read these verses because, as he says in John 3.17, for God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. His first coming was not His coming for judgment. It was for saving. And He is not proclaiming that part of His ministry yet, so He held off reading that verse in Isaiah. Having read the Scripture, He sits down now for the exposition, as was customary, and He says, these verses have been fulfilled in this very moment. Now look how they react to this hearing of that that statement in verse 22. All were speaking well of Him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from His lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Well, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sun or when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to uh, Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Nahaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Well, the crowd has two reactions at once to what Christ has said, and he follows it with an even more stunning statement. First, it's said in the Luke passage we just read that they're edified. Initially, they're very edified, they're very uh, comforted. They're very pleased by what He has said. It reaffirms their faith in God's word to hear these prophecies expounded. They marvel at God's grace, the grace shown toward them for having promised to bring a Messiah. But what they couldn't accept was Jesus was that person. In other words, they loved the teaching that there would be a Messiah and that he would do all these wonderful things, but they weren't ready to accept that this particular man was, in fact, that person. Now, we know their reason for not accepting him was a rather pitiful one, one that I think we've all shared in, at least to some extent, if not with him, but with other people. And that is, we knew them too well. They knew him so well, they couldn't accept that he was anyone different than they had always seen him to be, just Joseph's son. They had grown up around him. You know, in Jewish life, in a small community like Nazareth, in ancient times, there was no fast transportation. You didn't move around a lot. You stayed in a fairly small area your whole life. You didn't have air-conditioned homes. There was no value in sitting inside that little box all day long. It was very uncomfortable. You, you, You had open doors, open windows. You were outside more often. You didn't have television. You didn't have things that distracted you so that you didn't need communication or interaction with other people. Life was about other people. I saw this so vividly in Kenya. You know, they have slightly better standard of living than we're talking about in these days, granted, but not much. And the difference was in in what I saw there was they defined entertainment, passing of time. uh, Their entire experience was defined by having interaction with other people. They were much more... Uh, gregarious people than we are here in this country in my experience. Even as much as we like to get together, they do it constantly. And Jesus would have been fairly well known in that town. Not because he was famous as a child, but because all the children were known. They would wander around. They would go in little groups around the town, hanging out together. He would have gotten to know pretty much the whole town. And he's just too ordinary. He's too normal. He's too much what they know in order to be something as grand as the Messiah, somebody they look forward to their entire existence as a culture. The irony is this. If strangers in another city saw him and were prepared to believe in him as the Messiah, those who knew him best wouldn't, though he was sinless, though his life should have stood out in some way as a testimony of who he really was. It wasn't enough. I think, as an aside, this also reminds us that faith in Christ is more than a belief in the concept Of a Messiah. It's more than just a belief in the doctrines of your faith, all that stuff that comes around Christ Himself. It is ultimately a belief in a person. It is ultimately a belief that this man named Jesus, who lived roughly 2,000 years ago, really was who He personally claimed Himself to be. That He was, in fact, all man and yet also God Himself in human form. If that fact alone does not penetrate the heart, if you're willing to accept the goodness of Christian values, if you're willing to accept the importance of getting together with other Christians and doing public works and service, and if you even like the fact that the Bible has interesting things to say about how you live your life, but you never get to that last step and say, Jesus is who he said he was, and I believe in that, and I believe his purpose in coming was to save me from my sin. If that personalization never happens, the rest of it will just be memories in your head while you are in hell to put it bluntly. The only thing that matters is was Jesus who He said He was. That alone saves us. In Acts 4.12, we, we are told this, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is the name of that man and who He was. Now Jesus, of course, sensed their doubt. He, he knew what they were thinking. And before they could even say the words that they're thinking, He said it for them. That their unbelief fundamentally came about from the fact that they knew him too well and they knew he had been in Capernaum recently. They probably already heard the stories of what he had done there and it was so miraculous, the things he was doing, they probably came into this synagogue to see the miracles they had heard him do before. So their principal purpose in being here was to see the miracles that they had heard he could do. Matthew, Mark and Luke himself all record many of the miracles of Jesus and if those miracles are to be taken just as they're written, they would have been astounding things. Never seen, for example, a leper with advanced leprosy. The skin has turned white from the, from the disease, but it's more than that. Limbs are missing. Fingers are gone. The disease has rotted away the extremities. So in the most severe cases, they can have hands missing, feet missing. So when Christ heals a leper, we're talking about limbs instantly reappearing. These are miracles that don't just... You know, you can't fool somebody with that. You know the guy's been sitting on the street corner begging his whole life and his limbs disappearing, and now he's walking around with all his limbs restored. You can't deny that miracle. And you can't explain it either except the power of God. That's the kind of stuff Jesus has been doing, at least initially in Capernaum. People come in expecting that in this moment, in this synagogue. And it's likely that his unwillingness, Christ's unwillingness to perform the very things they wanted to see is in part, at least due to their skepticism. And then his famous quote, his famous quote that a prophet can't be successful in his own hometown. You know, I I feel that very much. I can't be successful in my own house most days. Don't worry, I get brought down to the proper level regularly. The word for welcomed, when he says a prophet is not welcomed in his own hometown, that word for welcome can also be translated accepted. In other words, prophets are never accepted in their own towns. Prophets are not received by their own people. Christ is saying this not as a sort of woe is me sort of statement. He's saying it as a rule of thumb. He's saying it that this is always the case. The essential problem here was not that the the, the people in Nazareth had a desire to see the same miracles that were done in Capernaum. The desire to see a miracle in and of itself is not the problem. The problem is their purpose in wanting to see it. In the case of Capernaum, their desire apparently to see the miracle was to see God at work. Let's go see God heal somebody. Whereas in Nazareth, the purpose was more clearly the case of let's see if He is God and if He can do the miracle, then maybe we'll believe that He is who He says He is. In other words, I'll believe in you if you do the miracle. It was a test in one case versus a sign of faith in the other. And so... If you've studied the Gospels, Jesus never indulged this. He never condescended to do the things that people asked Him to do to prove who He was. Very rarely did He work in that way. Especially when He was under the treatment from the Romans and they said, defend yourself, say who you are. He never opened His mouth. He was never going to confess or change who He was to satisfy men. They were going to have to see it in faith or not see it at all. Then to prove His statement, to prove His statement concerning what they do to prophets... He quotes about two famous incidents. And we're going to look at these in a few minutes in detail because they're fascinating. And they'll give you a lot of insight into what Jesus is saying about being a prophet and being rejected. These are two famous stories in the history of the nation of Israel. The first is about the prophet Elisha from 1 Kings chapter 17. Here's the background. The nation of Israel is apostate and they're largely rejecting the word of God that's coming through their prophet Elisha. And God has brought a severe drought... Along with famine, onto the nation of Israel, and it's going to last for three and a half years. Three and a half, by the way, is a common value, a common period of time for God's divine judgment. So we have three and a half years of judgment now coming upon the nation of Israel for their sin. Elisha was sent by God to a Gentile city so that he himself might escape the famine, so that Elijah himself would not be subjected to the very famine that the whole nation is going through. And he goes to a Gentile city, and he meets a widow, and she has a son. And the woman shows him kindness, shows him mercy. And she acknowledges when he visits her that he is a messenger of God. He comes upon her and he says, give me some bread, make me some bread. And the woman says, I only have enough grain for myself and my son. We're going to go home, I'm going to make this bread, I'm going to eat it, and then we're going to die. She's basically decided that there's no hope and this is the end and she's going to enjoy her last meal. Now under those circumstances, Elijah says, no, Trust me, give me the first of that bread and then there'll be plenty for you. Don't worry. There's a step of faith in that. If you don't believe who he is, if you don't believe he has the power of God behind him, if you don't believe he's truthful in saying he is a prophet, then you're not going to give him your last meal. But if you believe all those things, you're willing to take what would otherwise be your last chance for some life and hand it over. And that's what the woman did. And as a result, that woman and her son never ran out of flour or oil. The ingredients that she said, like the fishes and the loaves, it's the same idea. She had just enough to make for herself. She made it for him instead. Turns out that little amount she had never ran out until the famine was over. She was able to live forever through that, well, through the famine, in other words, on what she started with. And he says in the story, in fact, let me um, kind of sum that up God sent Elijah to those who would receive him without question, but he ignored the citizens of Israel, which is the point Jesus is making here to the people in Nazareth. Elisha could have done the same thing for the people of Israel, provided for them in the midst of the famine, but God pointedly sent him away from the nation to a Gentile world who was willing to accept who he was, while the ones who knew him best, the ones who should have known he was a prophet, the ones who understood God out of the word, were not listening and were rejecting him. God is not content, is not pleased to provide for those who are rejecting him and rejecting his word. Then the story of Elijah, this is the one we'll take a few more minutes to look at because the story of Elijah demonstrates Jesus' point about faith without questioning and without demanding and without asking for proofs. But it does it in a very pointed way, very interesting way. I'm going to read a few verses out of 2 Kings chapter 5 to give you the background on this story of of the second example he gives of Elisha. 2 Kings 5 verse 1. Now, Nehaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram was a great man with his master and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now, Nahum is captain of the um, Aramean, I guess Aramean, I guess is the way you would say it, Aramean nation's army. So there's the Aramean nation, they have a king, and the captain of all their armed forces is this man, he is They are an enemy to the nation of Israel. These two have fought before in the past, And and the Arameans are a very feared and powerful enemy of the nation of Israel. And this captain is a leper. Now, leprosy is a disease that kills you eventually, but it takes many years to get you there. And it's a debilitating, uh, disfiguring disease as you go. It's very contagious. People could catch it from one another. So it was the case that as as your disease became more visible, you would be ostracized from the public's attention. They didn't want anything to do with you. But until you got to the more advanced stage of the disease, you could still serve and do what you needed to do. And this is apparently where this man is at. He's in an early stage of his leprosy. Now verse 2, Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naam's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Nahum went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. So the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naam, my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive? that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. The, the king of Israel got scared at the letter that was brought to him because he couldn't imagine how he himself was going to cure anybody of leprosy. So he saw this whole thing as a ruse, as some way that the, king of, uh, uh, the uh, Aramean king could use this as an excuse to attack the nation of Israel because the king of Israel didn't honor his request. Verse 8, it happened when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had tore his clothes. He sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naam came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elijah. Elijah sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naam was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought... He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abnah and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servant came near and spoke to him and said, Uh, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. It's interesting, isn't it? When he traveled to Israel, he was taking great risk. He was essentially going into enemy territory. So he's got a certain amount of faith, a certain amount of, re- of respect for whatever this man in Israel can do, this prophet he's heard so much about from this little girl. Now he does take some insurance with him, He takes the equivalent of about 750 pounds of silver and about 150 pounds of gold. So he is going to do his best to make the king happy at his arrival. And the king, obviously distressed because he doesn't understand what he's to do, but Elisha steps up and Elisha gives him an instruction that is very simple, but it also very clearly points to God. When you look at seven times anything, the effect of that is to say, this is God doing the work. Dip seven times is God. You know, the fact that it's just water and all the rest tells you that it's not miraculous in and of itself. There's something more powerful than just the water at work here. And that was Elijah's point. But the captain's so upset because it doesn't fit his image of how God will work, of the miracles God will do and how that miracle will look. He even described exactly what he expected Elijah to do. You didn't wave your hands, Elijah. It won't work unless you wave your hands, you know. He had a very... Simple, superficial picture of how God can work, sort of in a magic-like way. And as he storms off indignant, he's just like the people of Nazareth. The point being made by Christ is his storming off in this story is similar to the way the people in Nazareth now are reacting to Jesus. He doesn't look like the Messiah. He isn't willing to do the things, he's not coming down with lightning bolts. He's not, you know, levitating as he walks. Where are the signs we expect of someone so great as the Messiah? And Jesus says, it's no different today than it's ever been. Just as Elisha could have healed the many lepers in the nation of Israel, he didn't. But he does heal essentially the enemy of the nation of Israel, a Gentile who came to him. And the only difference between the two groups is one had the faith to do as he was told, the other ones did not. The others were an apostate nation of people. I love the way the servant reminds the king that if he had been asked to do something difficult and painful, if he had been asked to do something that took a lot of sacrifice on his part, stand on your head for 4 days and eat live snakes, and he probably would have done all of those things, thinking that well, certainly this is what's required to cure leprosy, but seven dips in the in the river was too simple. And that's exactly why Jesus' own brothers were told rejected him until after the resurrection. His own family didn't believe in who he was, and that I mean, think about it, that makes sense from who we are and the way we see the world. If you're, think of a relative. In fact, think of a relative you don't think much of, which isn't a good picture, it isn't a good match because Jesus we knew lived sinlessly and I'm sure the one you're thinking of didn't. But nevertheless, think of someone you're close enough to that if one day as an adult they came up to you and said, by the way, cousin or whatever, I'm God, <laughs> essentially, what would your reaction be? You know, even if you couldn't point to something that proved him wrong, you'd still doubt it. But the stranger you come up to and say, I'm God, is more inclined to believe. And they weren't willing to consider Jesus as the Messiah because of their familiarity. I love the fact that the servant said what he said to Elijah because I think we do exactly the same thing as Nahum did. We are looking for the difficulties of belief. How many times have, I don't know if you've had this experience, but how many times have you heard of or seen for yourself an unbeliever who when you tell them the gospel message in its simplest form, they, they basically reject it because it's too easy. It's too simple. All I do is believe in that and I'm saved? No, where's the catch? I have to come to church now, right? I have to give you money, right? Well, if you want to, you can, but that you don't have to. Well, there's something wrong with this. I haven't figured out what's going on, but you've got some trick and I just don't see it. You see, that, that is the same feeling that man had when he said, I'm not going to go jump in the river, I could have done that at home. But it's not a matter of the act, it's a matter of what you think about the person who says it. If you believe in Elijah as a man of God, you do what he says regardless of what it looks like. If you believe in Jesus as the man of God, as God himself, then you do what he says regardless of what it looks like and what it requires. It's a matter of belief in the person, not in the actions or the behavior. Works versus faith, that's the difference. Jesus admonished the citizens of Nazareth for their unwillingness to believe something so simple as a local boy returning with the gospel message. And Elijah the same. He was willing to heal a man who would believe simple things and ignore a whole country that wouldn't. And now that same fate is going to befall the Nazareth people that befell the nation of Israel in the time of their prophets. Their unwillingness to believe in the way their neighbors were means they're never going to see Christ come and do the miracles there that he did for the people in Capernaum. In other words, there were lepers and sick, dying people in Nazareth who missed the chance to be healed in this physical sense because they wouldn't accept Christ for who he was. Even if later they believed in him as their Messiah, they missed this chance for him to come and personally heal them. And when he gives them these stories, when he says, you're just like the people in the days of these prophets, they naturally get angry. Because even if they didn't understand the spiritual significance, they did figure out they just were called Gentiles. Or better yet, they were called less than Gentiles. Because that was the effect of the story. The stories were how prophets healed Gentiles while rejecting Jews because of the way they were received by the two groups. And Jesus now being comparing himself to one of those prophets is saying, I'm not going to do anything for you because you're treating me the way the prophets were treated by the people of, of, of the old time. And I'm going to now go and speak to people who will receive me, including Gentiles. And that angered them tremendously. The world lives, as I've said, in in an age now where we have the same expectations as the people in Nazareth. We don't like the gospel message presented as simple as it is. It's not dramatic enough. We don't like the fact that there's no work. We like the fact that we work and participate. We like sacrifice. A lot of faiths are built up now around sacrifice. Do this ten times. Give this 20 times. Pray this 100 times. Kneel down and come back and do this. And it's all designed to, to make us feel like we're participating in our own salvation by sacrificing, by, by self-flagellation, by, self, uh, by, by in some sense making ourselves diminished and making ourselves hurt and feel bad. But at least I earned something in the process. No, you didn't. That's, that's the point. There is nothing to be earned by our work. Our work is of no value to God. When we say it's a free gift because we can't earn it, we mean it. And the answer won't satisfy many. And many will demand spectacular proofs, a lot of evidence as the people in Nazareth did. But faith, Hebrews tells us, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is always by faith in the heart, not by the eyes. When we present the gospel message to others, keep that in mind. Keep in mind two things. Number one, the world's going to largely reject it. The road is narrow, not wide. Largely, the world's going to reject the gospel message. So it means you have to preach it to 100 people to get one, maybe. Or preach it to 10 to get one. Who knows how many. But if you preach to 99 and stop because you think this isn't working, you've missed the one who was maybe the next. The second thing to remember is that skepticism, that demand for proof is natural. But that doesn't mean we're supposed to give in to it. Uh, So often is the case in many churches that men of God, in many cases, true meaning, true intentioned men of God, look for something spectacular to seal the deal with the audience. If I could produce a healing, if I can pray for something and have it happen, and that will certainly seal the deal. There will be somebody in the audience who will be convinced by some miraculous power of God. I would tell you that if Christ felt that was the way, He would have done it Himself. It is not the way. Once in a while we're going to find that one who will accept Christ in the way Christ said it would happen as, as an innocent child. You know, when he talks about people come to me, you have to come to me with a faith like a child, you have to come to me as a child would come. He's talking about the way children believe whatever you tell them. A young child will generally take the word of an adult without question and certainly without demands of proof in most cases. Now, in this culture, we're so cynical now that a child gets above the age of eight and then they've lost that innocence. But many still have it. That's the way an adult comes to faith. Almost almost despite themselves, almost as if they can't explain it, but they do trust. And that's the faith that pleases the Father because it honors His Son and it honors His Word. Father, I give You thanks as always. Thanks indeed, Father, for the Gospel message. Thanks, Father, for the faith that we each share, a faith given to us, a faith that does not demand proof, does not require that we see miracles in, in, in our day even, that does not demand, Father, that You prove Yourself. I pray, Father, that we would never take that attitude, that we could trust in You, Father, even if You were to never show us anything in this life, for You've already shown us so much by the power of the Spirit to save us and to give us the faith we have. I pray, Father, that we would honor that faith by how we preach the Gospel message, that men and women throughout the world, as we run into them in our daily walk, would have reason to come to know Christ because we state it, we live it, and we allow the Holy Spirit, Father, to convict them and to bring them to that knowledge. I pray, Lord, we would never have a temptation to reduce the gospel message down to tricks, Father, to something that might impress and put attention on, on the miracle rather than on you and on your work on the cross. Though you can do miracles, Father, though you often will, we pray, Father, that they would never be our focus and our purpose, that they would simply be a consequence of our walk with you. I also pray, Father, for the men and women in this room. I pray for a blessing on each one of them, Father, as you may decide to grant it. That their obedience, Father, in coming together and gathering and in studying your word would be honored by you and in some way. Some way, Father, that they may know that you do delight to give good gifts to your children that that Father might reinforce their desire to be in this body and that it might encourage them, Father, to share the good news with others. I pray as well, Father, for the weeks and months to come as our little group continues to gather, Lord, and perhaps in a nicer facility one day according to what you provide. I pray it would be an opportunity, Father, for others to join us. That as we are welcoming and desiring to share the good news, you would bring those who wish to get that good news here. Father, in all we do this week, let us glorify You. Let it be according to Your will and according to Your Word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.